What do you drink your wine out of? Wine glasses come in a range of sizes. You've probably even seen those adverts for the novelty ones that can hold an entire bottle. But what you might not realise is that the average wine glass in the UK today can hold almost half a litre. That wasn't always the case, and a new analysis on bmj.com takes a look at the changing size of wine glasses from 1700 until now. It's all very interesting, but why are we, as a medical journal, publishing on that? It's all to do with portion size and consumption. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and to discuss I'm joined by two of the authors of that analysis. Teresa Marto, who's Director of the Behaviour and Health Research Unit at the University of Cambridge, and Zorana Zopan, a research associate in that unit. Teresa, hello, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. And hi, Zorana. It's a pleasure to, to be here. And to add a little historical perspective, we also have Matthew Winterbottom, Curator of Decorative Arts at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Hello, Matthew. Hello. So, Matthew, we're the BMJ. Um, we don't very often talk uh, to historians of, of decorative art, but um, we've got you on the podcast here to, to, to put this, this paper in perspective a little bit. So um, if I could take us all back to 1700, um, when, when the, the first glass in, in this paper was from, could you tell us a little bit about the, the place of wine in that society and, and what about wine glasses as well? Um, can you sort of draw a picture for us? Well, this is the very beginning, I think, of the British wine glass, which really gets going in the in the following century, in the 18th century. But really, right at the beginning of the 18th century, wine is very much the kind of uh, drink of the, the wealthy. So it's not really a drink that everybody's drinking. It's um, That's beer. Most people are sort of are, are, are drinking fairly weak um, beer for breakfast, um, dinner and supper. Um, uh, and wine really is, is very, very expensive, so it's only really a, a, can be afforded by the kind of middle classes and above. So it's not something that's drunk by all classes of society. I mean, uh, gin is also a great sort of um, drink uh, at that time in the, in the late 17th and early 18th century that is, is, is very cheap and easily made, which is also being being drunk extensively by the kind of lower the lower classes. Wine itself, do we know anything about that? What was it like? You know, how palatable was it? Um, what kind of, where was it used? Was it drunk with dinner every day? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, what about wine itself? Yeah, well, wine, wine's very popular, of course. It's been popular for a long time in Britain, since the sort of medieval period, uh, and it's brought over main, mainly from France, but also from Spain and the Canary Islands and places like that. And actually, wine at that time was often quite heavily fortified, so it could travel on by sea. So it was often quite like sherry. So sack, what we call sack was really what uh, was a kind of fortified wine from Spain. Um, uh, so it's quite sweet and quite heavy and quite rich. And also wine at that date was often mixed with water uh, and spices and sugar. The British were known for particularly for um, having quite a sweet tooth. So they would often mix wine in the 16th and earlier 17th century with, with sugar to make it even more spiced. Um, so it would be quite sort of a bit like mulled wine. Yes. In fact, they often would heat it up as well. But I think by the moving into the 18th century, there's more and more of an appreciation of fine French wines uh, and, and very expensive French wines beginning to come in. Uh, so I think there's more of a, there's a move away from that kind of medieval practice of of, um, of of mixing your wine with water and spices and honey or, or sugar mm. and, and more to a, a modern sort of appreciation of, of wine. 
if wine was expensive and, and for the upper classes and, and a little bit sherry-like, did that, you know, what kind of glasses were people drinking out of? Was it about small little measures or was it, you know, big gulps? Well, it depends, it depends very much how wine served at the time, of course, and depends when people are drinking. 1700 really is very much a, a real time of flux, you know, in terms of the kind of beginning of the kind of modern, modern habits, dining habits. And what's happened really in the late 17th century is the court has come back from exile from, um, from the continent. You know, Charles II comes back and brings back these very sort of continental ways of dining, new ways of dining, and new kind of much more refined habits. So, for example, the dining fork comes in, you know, become, comes in the late 17th century and matched dining table sets come in for the first time. So, it's a move away from the kind of medieval ceremonial dining and much more into a more private way of dining. But if you if you are very wealthy and they don't say only the wealthy can really afford to drink wine, it's very much um, you would you know, if you were sitting at the table, wine was usually brought to you as you drank, uh, and so you would you would have your glass brought to you. You would take a gulp from it, drink it down in one, and then it would go back with the footman behind you to the sideboard or the buffet where the glass would be rinsed and cooled, and then when you wanted another drink, you would call it. So often wine glasses at this date are much smaller because people are drinking drinking them in one go that you're not keeping the wine glass on the table uh, it's a slightly different way of dining to what we're, what we're used to um, what happens in the course of the 18th century is that um, you get more and more informal ways of dining and people start you know, people start moving the wine bottles onto the dining table you get the introduction of smaller sort of wine coolers coming in in the kind of, uh, sort of second quarter of the the 18th century really becoming much more popular uh, and that means that people are you know are serving themselves from the wine bottles that are in front of them so it means that the wine glasses can get bigger because you can hold more you're not having to drain it all in one go mm. and that's a good point i think to um segue on to uh, the research proper now we'll come back to wine in a second um but Teresa, if i could start with you uh you'll have been looking um over time about this link between portion size what's sitting in front of someone and the amount that we consume. So I was just wondering, could you give us a sort of a background um, appreciative of what we know about that? Yes, there's a well-described strong link between how much we eat and the size of the portions, packages and tableware that we use. And in short, the larger these are, then the more we eat, often without awareness. And some of that evidence also includes drinks, but it's non-alcoholic drink. Mm. So we, there is some evidence already between um, drink size and consumption. What do we know about when we add alcohol into the mix? Because obviously that's, you know, it's got a disinhibiting effect. I know that after a couple of drinks, it's harder to uh, decide not to continue. Um, but then also, I suppose, it's got an inhibitory effect. You drink too much and you don't feel well. So you know, there's a lot more going on there when you when you add something like alcohol into the mix. There is. I just want to stress how surprisingly little we know about the link between drink size and consumption. So in a, a review, a, a Cochrane review that we conducted just two years ago, we, uh, we were looking for papers that had, had um, studied the... Uh, size in relation to food, alcohol and tobacco. And we found 72 relevant studies and 69 of those focused on food, three on tobacco and none on alcohol. So we, we were really struck by that. Um, so what that tells us is that there was no evidence at the end of 2015 in the public domain that had compared the impact of different serving sizes of drinks, different wine glasses, 
all different bottle or can sizes. Mm. So we're right at the beginning of building this evidence base. Uh, but you have done some work into looking at this. And, and Zorano, if you could tell us about this. Um, you have gone into a pub and, and looked at the size of the glasses and, and how much people drink. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, we found that when um, a constant portion of wine is served in a larger glass, this increases purchasing and people consume more if wine is served in a larger glass. And this has been partially replicated in a second bar, uh, in a second bar but further replications are, are underway. And consumption is increased by almost 10%. Which in, which in a sort of public health measure way is, is quite a lot. Yes, it is. So was that why you decided then to maybe have a look and see how wine glass size has changed over time? Yes. Uh, well, given this preliminary evidence that larger wine glasses may be increasing consumption, and on the other hand, that certain tableware, such as plate size, has increased over time, it was possible that the size of wine glasses may have also increased over time. And describing the, the wine glass capacity um, over time was an initial step in considering whether any changes in their size have contributed to the increase in alcohol over time, mm-hmm. and as well whether wine, wine glass size may be a, a suitable target for reducing consumption. Hmm. Um. So uh, what you've done is you've gone and, and looked at um, some collections of wine glasses. You've looked at uh, uh, the, the, the size of them and sort of plotted them over time. So can you just take us quickly through, through the study that you've done? Yes, uh, we recorded the capacity of wine glasses available or sold in England between 1700 and 2017 from several different sources. A uh, wine glass collection held at the Department of Western Art in the Ashmole Museum, University of Oxford, uh, the Royal, as well as the Royal Household, which also holds a collection of antique glassware, catalogs of uh, glassware manufactured, Artigan Crystal, eBay, and the website of the Department for Journalists. We found that the capacity of wine glasses in England has increased significantly over the past 300 years, from an average of 66 milliliters in the 1700s to an average of 450 milliliters today. This increase began in the 19th century, and it was gradual until the 1990s, when sizes started to increase steeply. The the project started with one of one of our authors, Alex Evans, who um, conducted her student project looking at eBay, so wine glasses that were for sale there, looking at capacity. And while that showed uh, the upward uh, trend in in glass size, we were well aware of uh, a potential bias in that, and in particular that. Smaller wine glasses may well have had a survival advantage. In other words, larger glasses are more likely to break. And so what we then started to look for were complete collections of wine glasses, which are terribly difficult to find, Mm -hmm. um, which is what led us to um, the royal household when we learned that uh, with every new monarch, uh, a new set of glassware is... is, um, 
uh, created. And unlike most uh, households, if there's any chip or breakage, it's replaced. So we knew that they had, albeit uh, not necessarily the same wine glasses that you or I might drink from, they had a complete set that went across two centuries. So mm. that helped us get over that uh, bias. Mm. And I was going to say to, to Matthew here, is the Royal Collection considered sort of representative of the kind of wine glasses that other people in the upper class were using at the times? Um, it depends, really. I mean, the Royal Collection is very strong. I used to work at the Royal Collection, so I know the collections quite well there. And, I mean, it's very strong in 19th and 20th century glasses, not so strong in the kind of 18th century. Very little survives from earlier on in, in this period, so from the 1700 period, I think there's very, virtually nothing that survives um, um, that was actually made for a monarch. May, stuff may have come into the collection later on, but, but, but so it's very difficult to, to know. And also, of course, the, the, the royal household and the royal customs often lag, sometimes lag behind slightly the, the more sort of um, uh, fashion, which is not always led by the British court, unlike in continental Europe, where, you know, the court often led fashion um, intended to be a slightly more bourgeois or middle-class kind of um, lifestyle, particularly as, you know, as led by King George III and Queen Charlotte or even Queen Victoria. So um, I think um, it, would, it would certainly represent the kind of typical aristocratic sort of um, court taste, but wouldn't necessarily be leading fashion um, unless you, you talk about somebody like King George IV in the 1820s, for example, who was very much a kind of fashion leader, but he's mu very much the exception, I think, in, in terms of the, um, the royal collection. And is it fashion, you've mentioned that a few times there, that's, that's really changing the size of wine glasses over time? Is that to do with, yeah, you know... Well, I think it's, all, it's to do with fashion, but it's also to do with um, technology, you know, the technology of being able to make larger and larger glasses and thinner and thinner glasses. I mean, part of the reason that probably possibly that 18th century glasses are smaller is because they're all hand-blown and they're more difficult to make, so it's easier to make a slightly small glass. And they're less vulnerable. But I'd say the, the fashion also is because... Um, you, you, you know, you don't want a huge glass on your table um, and to drink from if you're drinking small, small ch shots from it. You know, you want a small glass. And when fashions change, glasses grow slightly you know, as, as people want more wine in their glasses. But I, don't, I mean, certainly wine glasses are smaller in the 18th century. That's, you know, there's no doubt about that. But actually, when you look at the, the drinking habits of the 18th century, people, I think, were probably drinking more in the 18th century than were in the 19th century, despite the fact that glasses are getting bigger. And you've got to remember, of course, you know, when you've got a wine glass, you're not necessarily always filling it right to the top. You know, you're, you know, there's a, you, you're, you're, you know, you're not filling it. So um, it, that would be kind of bad form, I think, to do that. So, you know, I've got a wonderful quote here from King George, about King George IV from 1830, when the Duke of Wellington went to visit him for breakfast. And he, he describes what he has for breakfast, which includes a pigeon and beefsteak pie, um, with, which contain two pigeons and two beefsteaks, three parts of a bottle of Moselle wine, a glass of champagne, two glasses of port, and a glass of brandy, and that was just for breakfast. So you can see he was drinking vast amounts of alcohol, but he was exceptional. And I think you know, the fact that the Duke of Wellington is recording that is, is, is showing that he was exceptional. But, but you know, within that period, people were drinking enormous amounts of alcohol. For example, we know we know his his brother, who became King George the King William the Fourth, um, would drink regularly a kind of bottle of sherry at dinner. Which, you know, by our standards today would be a vast amount. Not necessarily from particularly huge glasses, but regular kind of heavy drinking. Mm. Um, Teresa, coming back to you, uh, do, were you able to sort of map across um, that, that size, the, sorry, glass size change with what we know, what might be recorded about um, wine consumption over that period? 
what what we can see is that for except for the um, 18th century collection held in the Ashmolean, um, in all uh, of the other um, four sources that we had, there is an upward trend um, that's 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 evident across the centuries, and the most remarkable um, upturn uh, in about the 1990s. And what we know from consumption of wine in England is that it started to increase dramatically uh, from the from the 1960s. Um, between the 60s, between 1960 and 1980, wine consumption increased almost fourfold here, and again doubled uh, between 1980 and 2004. So it's it's a correlation. Um, it's not a causal connection, but the increase in wine glass capacity does very much map the increase in the amount of wine that we're consuming in this country. And obviously, um, in that time as well, I mean, not going back to 1700, but um, wine has changed from being more of a a luxury item um, for for maybe middle class people to to being much more um, consumed across across society. Absolutely. I mean, some people talk about the democratisation of of wine, um, representing greater affordability, availability and, and marketing um, from from the 60s onwards, um, mm. and it's now um, the most popular form in which alcohol is consumed, particularly for women. Hmm, that's interesting. Is there? An, um, I, I've seen statistics that that alcohol consumption is actually going down amongst younger people. I wonder if there's a, uh, uh, you know, if you if you know if there's a, an age correlation to to drinking wine. Um, wine tends to be the preferred drink amongst older drinkers um, and you're right that amongst younger people in this country there are larger a larger proportion who are not drinking any alcohol um, but still in this country I think 84% of the population consume alcohol um, not necessarily every week the latest figures show that just under 60% of people, when questioned, consumed some alcohol in the previous week. Mm. That's a lot. So while, so while alcohol, um, certainly the amount that's being consumed, uh, is coming down slightly from a very high level, uh, almost a peak in 2008, um, it's still very high and is, I think it's the fifth largest, um, risk factor for premature mortality um, and um, uh, ill health, mm. and particularly amongst young people. But but they they're less likely to be consuming the wine. The wine is being consumed by um, those aged over fifty. Mm. Um, as you've pointed out a couple of times, there was this huge uptick. If you look at the graph that goes with the paper, you can really see it. Um, this kind of exponential increase in the size of, of wine glasses. Um, and you've obviously put on there the last point, um, 2017, that's the, the latest you can do. Uh, but the previous ones were in sort of 50-year increments. But I'm just thinking, if you kind of extrapolate forwards, the size of wine glass can't continue to, to increase as it has been recently. Um, we would be ending up drinking out of swimming pools. But... Um, I'm just wondering, do you think we've come to maybe a place where this this is going to have to start to plateau? 
Um, I've absolutely no idea. Um, certainly looking at the line, uh, it's uh, definitely going up. Um, reasons to think it might be reaching, we might be reaching peak wine glass capacity. Um, results of a survey published this month, I think it was over 75,000 people were interviewed who, who, who consumed alcohol across 21 countries, and a third were saying that they wanted to reduce the amount of alcohol that they consumed. It's then an interesting question about how we change what has become a social norm mm. for serving larger and larger um, servings, um, particularly in, in pubs and restaurants. Mm -hmm. This whole journey started by looking at the, the size of, of wine glasses in, um, in a pub and, and seeing that there was a 10% increase if people were in consumption if, if people were given uh, larger glasses. Um, it seems like you know that would be a place where uh, it, some levers could be pulled by government in a way to to perhaps reduce um, consumption in the way that Scotland's just brought in a minimum price for alcohol. That's right. Um, wine glass size could uh, become regulated, not by uh, at national level, but possibly as part of local licensing regulations. I mean, at the moment, we don't have enough consistent evidence to show the effect of serving wine in larger glasses, leading to an increase in sales, in other words, consumption. But if that, if that finding is reproduced in, in a greater number of studies, at the moment we've, we've um, conducted this study in, two, in three bars, two, two of which have shown this, this effect. So if that's, if that's found again, then certainly um, local licensees, um, licensors rather, can uh, integrate um, or, or, or specify the size of wine glass for which different serving size, sizes can be um, sold. Mm. Um, we could also begin to think about, uh, if the evidence is there, uh, capping the size at which wine is served by the glass. Mm. I don't know when it started, but um, I think England is quite unusual in serving 250 millilitres mm. in a glass. If we look at continental Europe, it's unusual for wine mm. to be sold in larger than uh, 125 millilitre glass sizes. In fact, I've been in Italy where I've been served a small serving of wine, but in a very large glass, you know, so you can appreciate the the aroma of the wine and, and the colour of the wine by, by swirling it around the glass. But, um, but certainly they would never fill the glass like we do, do in this country um, to give you almost sort of half, a pint of, <laughs> half a pint of wine. Absolutely. Um, but, but it's very interesting you're talking about women drinking because of course in the 18th century, when we're talking about wine in the 18th century, people generally are drinking it with food. Um, uh, and women, and in the evenings, for example, you know, women would be drinking tea. You know, and tea is a new kind of drink that everybody is drinking that is not alcoholic for the first time. And it, the men might continue drinking sort of, um, port or um, liqueurs after dinner or, or, or punch. But certainly for women, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be drinking nearly as much as, as women are drinking today, even though, you know, we can see these, this, you know, this, this drinking culture, but it's primarily men that are drinking these vast amounts of alcohol, not the women. Uh, and, and it's usually at, centered around um, dining or eating.
Mm, and, and certainly it's thought that these very large increase in the sales of alcohol in, in England and Wales between 1980 and uh, 2008 was um, driven uh, importantly by increased consumption amongst mm. women. And do we know if that was that was wine specifically or, or is it uh, just generally across the board? Wine, um, wine is a more popular drink amongst women, so wine would certainly be a factor rather than an increase in, in beer. Interesting. Um, now, often portion size, um, I've seen it in, in association with, you know, advice about how one can reduce one's own um, consumption without it necessarily being a public health measure or something that's got any sort of statutory uh, um force behind it. And I was just wondering in terms of, you know, the research that you've done looking at um, people's consumption habits when it comes to uh, portion size. Um, if someone was wanting to cut down, do you have any advice about the size of glass that they should be using? So in the context of glasses, we know that people once consumed as little as 60, 70 milliliters of wine. But how far we can go in reducing the glasses today so that their size is acceptable, we don't know. But certainly, some change can be made. For instance, queuing towards smaller sizes in general might make a difference. It may be the case that a small glass and a large bottle and a large plate won't be as acceptable. But if we downsize our tableware and portions altogether, we might discover that our acceptability for large wine glasses may indeed be shifted in favor of smaller glasses. I think that's right. Um, thinking again about um, the, uh, the serving size of the wine, because I think it's the contrast between the serving size and the size of the glass. So if we look at mm, what the mean glass size is now, it's around 450 milliliters. So imagining 125 milliliters of non-premium white wine in that, um, it's going to look quite lost. Mm. Um, it, so one wants something that's smaller than, than 450. And I think, uh, as I would uh, say, we need more research. <laughs> and what we need is a wine glass in which a serving of 125 milliliters looks generous and appealing. <laughs> I think one place to start is not calling it small. Because it's true. I mean, I think these very large glasses, they do a little bit of wine in the bottom looks, looks just look rather lost. And um, I think people would, would complain about that. They would complain they were being shortchanged, I think, if they were Well, we think it. it's a perceptual effect that drove the increase in sales. I mean, it's just a hypothesis at the moment, but it's the perceptual effect that drove the increase in sales in the bar when usually it was the same serving size, 175 milliliters, being served either in a glass of 250 milliliters, 300 milliliters, or 370 milliliters. Mm. Now, when it was served in a glass that was 370 milliliters, sales were increased by 10%. Gosh. And we think that that is driven um, by a perceptual effect. So it, given that um, people tend to consume in units, uh, one cup of coffee, one slice of cake, one glass of wine, it could be that when people look at that wine in that larger glass, they can readily say to themselves, oh, that wasn't really a glass, and go back for more. <laughs>
But it's funny you're talking about that because actually in the later 18th and early 19th century, you get deception glasses, which are glasses with very thick glass bases, which when they're filled with alcohol, look fuller than they really are. So people could um, drink toasts without getting quite so drunk. So they were deliberately made to, um, so you could keep up or look like you were keeping up, but actually you wouldn't get quite so um, drunk as, um, as, your, as your friends were. The ideal gift. Are you telling <laughs> in the Ashmolean? <laughs> We should bring them out again, maybe. Yes, we should. I think you should. <laughs> well, thank you all. It's a very interesting discussion, and uh, uh, well, keep an eye out on the, the Ashmolean's website for those uh, for those glasses. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, Teresa, uh, Matthew, and Zarana, thank you very much for taking thank the time you very to much. talk thank to you. us. Yes. So you've been listening to Teresa Marteau, Zarana Zupan, and Matthew Winterbottom discuss the paper "Wine Glass Size in England." from 1700 to 2017, a measure of our time. That's it for this episode, but before we go, there's just time to remind you that Christmas is a time of giving. And this year's Christmas appeal is for MSF. In previous years, the BMJ's readers have been very generous to help our charities, and we urge you to do that again. Here's Javed Abdelmonim, Emergency Medicine Doctor and Chair of MSF UK to explain why BMJ's chosen MSF this year and why you should donate. Well, MSF was involved from the very beginning of this Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Uh, and it was, in fact, uh, through an MSF laboratory that the blood sampling was tested and, 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 and diagnosed with Ebola. From that very moment, uh, of, di- of the diagnosis having been made, uh, MSF put a ra- set about making a, um, reacting to it with with containment teams and, and treatment centres. And we can we can react in and we do we mandate ourselves to react in um, uh, in uh, natural disaster, in in disease epidemic, in conflict settings, and in areas where there's health imbalance. You know, we were the first to bring out antiretroviral drugs for HIV in Southern Africa. Um, we, you know, way back when, you know, two, three decades ago, we in, in Palicia in South Africa, you know, and we, we continue that sort of trailblazing now by trialing MDR, multidrug resistant tuberculosis drugs, bringing it out for the first time, the compassionate use of bedequilin in Armenia three years ago and helping form the new World Health Guidelines for, for tuberculosis and drug-resistant tuberculosis last year. So, you know, that could be, a, you know, HIV, TB, you know, you know disease burdens of exclusion or inequity or imbalance. But then look at the Haiti earthquake. You know, what a huge response we, 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 we made then. Or look at Ebola, what a huge response we made then. Or look at Syria and Yemen, where we're working now. We really are you know, unique in the sense of being able to do all those different complex things at the same time. There's, there's no point us having logisticians and, and, and medics doing things and advocacy campaigns and, and, and petitions if, you know, we, we can't do any of that without having money. So I don't want to sound crass, but, you know, at the end of the day, if we, if we didn't have money, we wouldn't be able to do any of this. And that's why we do, do do appeals, you know, we, and we won't be shy in saying, give us as much as you can, because do you know what? We do a very good job. And if I don't say so myself, and we'd like to continue doing such a good job because more often than not, we'll be the only people there giving that care, you know, in, in the north of Yemen, 
in, in the backwaters of South Sudan, in, in other forgotten places. You know, Uganda took in a million South Sudanese refugees. Their millionth refugee cost went into Sudan, from South Sudan into Uganda this year. Was that even in the headlines? Who's working there? Who's helping Uganda? Well, you can bet your bottom dollar and pound and euro that MSF is there. You know, and and again for the for, for Rohingya in Myanmar and so forth. So, no, I, I'll I'll gladly say if you, if you if you feel like helping and you can't in any other way than giving a pound, would gladly receive it. The easiest way to donate is online: msf.org.uk/bmj. One hundred and twenty-three pounds could pay for a blood transfusion for three people. 65 could buy a stretcher to help move an injured person to safety and £54 could provide the antibiotics needed to treat 50 war-wounded people. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow asking if cats and dogs are really good for older people. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on that. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.